Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode 34. We've got a ton of spoilers. The crew is here. What's up, Richard? How's it going? Hey, guys. What's up? Seth, what's up? What's up, guys? <laughs> Sporting a new uh, headset, actually. So Do, I, do we, I sound better? You sound really good, actually. So Hey, there we go. So new, new headset, everyone. And we're joined <laughs> by a guest, none other. It's Corbin. What's up? Hey guys, thanks for having me on the cast this week. Looking forward I'm, to it. Yeah, we're 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 really happy you came on, Corbin. It's it's good to have you here. Corbin, I will let you introduce yourself. This man, he does it all, but for everyone that doesn't know Corbin, you should. Here's Corbin. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I I do I do a lot. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about it all. Um no, well I uh I do coverage for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I'm like the the text guy who's always typing up deck lists in the background, working till well past the event closes. You'll sometimes see me on camera, just in the background at a pro tour, just sitting there typing away during a match. Um, but yeah, I do that. I work uh, full time uh, for MTG Price. I write there every week. I try to do some streaming and YouTube videos when I have the time. So I definitely stay pretty busy uh, in Magic, but it's a fun fun life. Yeah. Uh, so. Like I said, you do a lot of stuff. Uh, you also talk about finance stuff. So here we are. We're going to run through a lot of stuff. So you, before we get into it, you made a YouTube video about the Battle for Zendikar Expeditions. And I wanted you to go into that a little bit. I wanted to discuss it a little bit. But before that, what, what's your overall take about Battle for Zendikar so far? I mean, I'm certainly excited so far. I think that it's certainly well on its way to being, you know, the most popular set of all time and best-selling set of all time. You know, that sort of thing that we reach every year, it seems like, when something exciting comes out. So I know people were disappointed at first that the enemy fetch lands weren't coming back. Um, and, you know, and granted, that is disappointing. Uh, but what we do have, I think, at this point sort of makes up for it to a large extent. We have, obviously, the full art basics, which is just kind of a cool thing to throw in. But we have the first cycle of fetchable duels that aren't Shocklands since basically Murmuring Bosk six or seven years ago. Uh, and this is the full cycle. So I think those are uh, a lot to sell the set. And then, of course, we have the Expeditions, which are basically, you know, a 50 to $300 lottery ticket put into every single, you know, a, a chance to have that in every single pack. So I think there's a lot to be excited about so far. Um, you know, as for Standard, it doesn't look to be as powerful as the first Indicar or anything like that. But all of that is relative to the power of the format, and the stuff we have so far does look like fun. So just to touch on what you said specifically about the Expeditions, we've all had a conversation about the Expeditions on this cast, and we kind of had mixed reviews. So um, with the shift to this Expeditions, do you think this is a trend we can see for other cycles going forward? Is this to generate sales on packs, or is this kind of a... Because, I mean, we really talked about this isn't like the best way to alleviate such a high demand for some of these, uh, well, I guess we'll say the, the fetch lands right. uh, for one, because they did do the fetch lands, not quite how we thought it would play out. But um, is this something you think is just there to sell packs, to sell boxes, or, you know, tr try to maybe include some of these reprints into... Uh, as a lottery for these sets going forward. Right. Well, I don't think that this is any attempt to say, 
hey, uh, you know, these fetch lanes are really expensive. People shouldn't be paying this much for them. We want to lower the price, so we're going to do expeditions. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think they looked at the first Syndicar and said, what is it people liked about the set? What tested really well, blah, blah, blah. Full art basics were obviously probably the number one thing. Landfall and allies were popular mechanics. Uh, and then, you know, somewhere on that list is the hidden treasures. Uh, and if people don't know what hidden treasures is, when the first Syndicar came out, the first run of packs had the chance, a small chance, of course, but a chance to find some sort of hidden treasure, which was a piece of power or like a candelabra or, you know, I think there might have been bazaars sort of thing. You know, these these vintage playable cards, expensive cards that were just sought after. And at the time, you know, Zendikar came out, Magic wasn't doing necessarily great as a whole. Uh, we'd been coming off a couple weaker sets in terms of like the time spiral block where it wasn't super right, popular. Yeah. So I think in that case it was, you know, Hey, let's try to revive the game here. We need to have a good selling set. So they just basically threw money into the packs. And I think that concept was very popular. And I think, you know, Zendikar expeditions are a modern day magic's doing well. How can we recreate that feeling without putting power in packs? Uh, and I think that's why they've done them is it just gives another incentive. And, you know, maybe, Maybe the thought came up that the fetches aren't in this set. We need something that people will still be excited about, so we're going to do this. You know, maybe that came up, maybe it didn't. But either way, I think it's something that will sell sets, and it just kind of puts the set over the top, uh, which they didn't have before. So I definitely don't think this has anything to do with alleviating the price on these cards, because it just simply creates uh, more very expensive ones. Um, but what it does do is give those players who can afford them and who want to have these for their cube or something like that, it gives a collector's item for those people to go after who can't afford it. And then for everyone else who isn't going to have a play set of, you know, $200 steam vents in their modern deck, if they happen to open one, they get to trade it for, uh, you know, half of their modern deck or an entire standard deck or something like that. You know, I think that's the point of them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, Richard, Seth, we haven't heard from you. So um, what, what would you like to discuss? Uh, about what we talked about so far. So I have an interesting perspective here. So I, I totally agree 100% here, but I see all of the comments on all of the posts on Goldfish, and there are two very controversial things that always come up. So Tango Lands versus Slow Lands, like, oh my god, <laughs> every thread devolves into that argument, and a lot of people are pissed about expeditions for no reason, right? Like Corbin just said, it's just some random money thrown in your in your pack, so everyone should be pleased, but people have this expectation that they need to own all the cards or that because they included the fetch lands here, these are the reprinted fetch lands. And people get really, really, really angry over this. And, you know, I always try to point out, like, judge promos are the best example for me, where, yeah, there's this, like, $600 Elish Norn or whatever she is out there. But if you want, you can just buy the normal version, right? You don't have to pay the markup to get the, the special foil Phyrexian uh, judge promo. And that's basically what Wizards is doing here, except instead of giving them out to judges, they're giving them, giving them out in random packs. So people are very upset over expeditions, but to me, it's just a bonus add-on thing, and uh, I think it's great for the game. I think it's a way that Wizards gets into the uh, promo market, whereas before it's kind of just all secondary, so here's their chance to get a bit of the, the profits from it. But for players, like it shouldn't matter. If you don't want the promos, don't get them. Right, it's I, just subsidizing the cost of everything else for you, so it's it's all upside, right? I think it's yeah. crazy that people are upset about it. I just can't fathom people being mad about having the chance to open a two hundred dollar bill. 
I think you said <laughs> it on Twitter, uh, Corbin, that we're actually now complaining about $100 bills in our pack. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, and I, I guess maybe I'm old and jaded, whatever. It's, people always seem to complain about things Wizards does, no matter what it is they do. And the kind of running joke has always been, hey, players will complain about the way he folded a $100 bill if you put it in their pack. And this is literally proving that point. Like, <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. When when we did the podcast, and by no means am I complaining about these, I was more taken back to that they actually kind of went ahead and did this. Not that I'm going to be mad about opening up a any one of them in any pack, because that's certainly some great upside right there. I didn't feel like Wizards needed to always fall back on something like this just to sell product. Like, the game's been around for 25 years. I mean, they've made really good successful sets before without having to do the expedition. So I was kind of just concerned about where we're heading rather than having them to open. Like I'm, I'm totally okay with them doing it, but I mean, if this starts to become like, I I don't know. I'm just kind of concerned about where they draw the line about having to do expeditions or whatever they end up calling them in each specific set, because I'm assuming if they're going to do it, they're going to try and fit the theme of that block or that specific set that they're going to do it for. Yeah, I I get that. I I can understand that concern. I mean, it just comes down to whether or not you think that this is going to be something they do every year or even every other year going forward. But I mean, it's been it's been, I think, six years, maybe seven since the original Zendikar came out. Yeah. And it's not like we've had, you know, hidden treasure in any set since then. (laughs) No, no, we haven't. And honestly, they didn't even really like put that out there that the treasures were in the boxes. I mean, people were just opening boxes and finding like a candelabra and they're like, Oh, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. never said anything about it. So I think like it's, it's good that they kind of promoted this uh, this time around. It, it will alleviate the, the problem of maybe not introducing more reprints, but it's giving the power back to the players in the sense that we're not seeing like $20 siege rhinos, right? Like we're, we're getting that, incentive to open up product rather than just scour through and, you know, find those specific rares or mythics that we need and just buying those. I I think it's even incentivized a lot of people, even in the finance community to start amassing some of this uh, sealed product where when mostly, I mean, that's not really the case. I mean, a lot of sealed product is not hoarded like that. um, I guess, unless you're really into that, but the stigma has been like, always kind of stay away from sealed product, but um, I, I think it's really good, and, and Richard, you mentioned this last cast, that this is kind of a, another reason why we are seeing high-profile staples like the Siege Rhino, like the Mantis Rider, that maybe at one time, you know, without the Fetchlands, would not be under a dollar or three dollars, despite seeing a lot of play. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that, Corbin? Yeah, no, I agree with that entirely, and I think one of the things that people who are complaining about the expedition seem to realize, you know, they're upset that they're not going to be able to get this expensive expedition. But what they're not going to complain about is when Gideon's $10, you know, um, instead of 20 or, you know, when other, whatever the tango lands or whatever it is you want to call them for what <laughs> it's worth. I'm, for what it's worth. I'm not a fan of tango or slow lands, but whatever you want to call them battle lands, I think is my favorite battle but, for Zendikar new cycle. <laughs> <laughs> people, people aren't going to complain when these cards are, four or five dollars or whatever it is they'll end up at because there was so much product open to look for expeditions, you know? That's the thing that people maybe forget about uh, when they complain about the the expensive cards in the set being the expeditions is how it pushes the price of everything else down. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Seth, you, you mentioned that even last cast too. So uh, did you want to chime in on anything? Well, I want to ask Corbin, we've been talking about how the prices of cards from the set will be depressed because of the expeditions. What right. do you think about the long-term future of this set? I mean, we got a lot of cool casual cards, EDH cards. Is there any chance these cards are ever going to be worth money, or will the supply just be too high for them to ever have a significant price tag? Well, as far as the the individual cards go, I think that the uh, the new cycle of lands will be a you know it will hold some decent long-term value because these for as much as people look at them in modern and say oh they're sort of mediocre they're actually extremely good in cube which is not a huge deal of course but it is something to keep in mind so i think that's something that has going for it long term uh obviously we saw from rise of the eldrazi that eldrazi stay popular a long time because of how good they are you know it remains to be seen if the ones we have here are necessarily as popular in commander or anything like that uh, but just having the basics in them uh, as well when those are all 25, 50 cents in a couple years. Uh, that just starts to add up. So, like long term, I I have as much hope for this set as I did not Theros, but hmm. I mean, it's not as good as Cons, right? Because there's not fetch lands in the long term value of it. But it, it's not bad either, from my point of view so far. Yeah. So well, yeah, it's sort of a non-answer, I guess. You know, I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure. I I think long term it will do just as well as any other large good modern er, magic set. Well, what about an individual card, though? Like, take the new Ulamog, for example. Is there any mm-hmm. chance that this is a $40 card five, ten years from now? Or will the supply just be too massive? That's a good... I mean, to be honest, it's a good question, because to me, you look at, you know, the analog being, you know, original Ulamog and Kozilek, uh, those basically seem very little competitive play, but they're very popular casually in Commander. So the real question is... Is that popularity derived from the Annihilator mechanic, or is it derived from the, oh, it's a big, powerful guy with a trigger when I cast it, you know? And I don't actually know the answer to that question, but I don't think in five years we're going to see it be 30 to 40. I think it'd be more in that, you know, 20, 25 sort of range because the expeditions, you know, an ex- a fetch land expedition in five years is probably going to be like four or $500, you know? So those will at some point keep the value down. Of course, the other thing to consider is we don't know for sure if the expeditions are in every run of the set or just the first run. Because if it's just the first run and it sells out very quickly, but then every battle box that comes out, you know, two months from now to the end of its run doesn't have a chance for those, that will, you know, give the long-term value of the set uh, a little more upside. Yep. That makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I I think that's a very good observation. For people that are looking to stow away some uh, some extra seal product of this, uh, I, I think this is as good a investment as any um, to stash these away for the years to come. Uh, um, whether it be boxes, cases, or even the um, the fat packs with the with the with the lands in them, it might take a little longer, but I, I think you're still going to see some good upside down the line with these expeditions being in them. I mean, I, I don't see any other reason uh, not to because these expeditions are going to be uh, sought after even you know, for as long as people are playing Cube or still playing Magic and just want to find that really rare promo for whatever reason. For what it's worth, I'm getting a case of this set, and I'm going to... 
uh, keep half of those boxes sealed and the other half I'll run, you know, random drafts and stuff with friends. So I, I do think that there is going to be value in the long-term sealed boxes. Yeah, me too. So yeah, that was a really good uh, YouTube video, Corbin. Um, it was good to see your overall take on Battle for Zendikar and, and some financial uh, insight as well. Let's let's get to some spoilers, right? We got a lot of spoilers in between uh, last week and this week, and we want your take on them as well, Corbin. So why don't you start us off, Richard? All right, we're just going to cut straight to the chase. Kiora, yep. master of the deck. <laughs> <laughs> Two green, blue. So four converted mana costs. Uh, starts with four loyalty, plus one, untap one target creature and up to one target land. Minus two, reveal the top four cards of your library. You may put a creature card and or land card from among them into your hand. Put the rest in your graveyard. And uh, my personal favorite, minus eight, uh, you get an emblem. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may have it fight target creature. And then put uh, three, eight, eight blue octopus creature tokens onto the battlefield. So I like how Brian David Marshall is going out of his way like every day on Twitter to make sure people know that you don't get infinite octopus creature tokens whenever you uh, whenever this goes off. Corbin, we'll, we'll uh, start with you. What do you think of Kiora? It's a merfolk. That's yeah, the most exciting is. part. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I actually think this is going to be very good in standard. Uh, if you look at the mana drop creatures we're going to have, it basically comes down to Sylvan Carrioted as a, um, you know, quote-unquote good one. Uh, I'm sorry, the replacement for Sylvan Carrioted, Rattleclaw, Rattleclaw Mystic, mm-hmm. uh, as a good one. And that allows you to get this out of turn early. And this is, I mean, it's great card advantage. You know, even if if, if you get it down and you're just plussing it, that's fine. You actually untap your mana dork um, so that it can uh, block or trade or you know, do whatever else you want with it. But activating the, the minus ability even once will basically replace itself. Uh, if you get a creature, you know, you get a card back. And the fact that you can also get a land, you know, a two for zero just by activating it. So I'm, uh, I think this card's going to be very, very good in standard, actually. Yeah, I know you've liked, really liked Rattleclaw Mystic. I know you've been kind of telling people for a long time to uh, stock up on them, whether they wanted to play them or uh, invest in them. Uh, I think this is a really good case for Rattleclaw, and essentially if you do use a Rattleclaw to get into this, uh, to ramp into this a turn early, you can actually play a 2-drop after this to defend as well, because you are getting the land and the creature. So by chance, if you do have a 2-drop, you can use it to defend Kiora. Yeah, plus... you that file of loyalty. Right, plus you can, uh, in these decks, you could curve into Sarkin the Dragon Speaker the turn after that, or Sarkin uh, whatever the other... The one from from Dragon. Unbroken. The Unbroken, yeah. Unbroken, right. Yeah, and just have two giant Planeswalkers on the field like that. I think that's certainly a, a pretty reasonable outline of a deck right there. Yeah. Seth, what do you think? Oh, I'm not too excited by the plus one ability, but one of the cards we're missing at rotation is Seder Wayfinder. And I really like the possibility of Kiora as a replacement there, like in maybe a control de- uh, shell that's looking to fuel the graveyard for dig through time or treasure crews, or maybe even a Deathmiss Raptor Den Protector deck. Like we need ways to get cards in the graveyard in the upcoming standard because the Delve cards are some of the most powerful cards in the format, and we're losing a lot of the best ways to do that. So that's what I'm excited about as far as Kiora. Yeah, yeah. Richard. I think she's good. I think she's great in the correct decks. Like, her minus two is 
uh, basically draw 1.5, draw two cards. She's kind of like a Jace in that respect, a Jace Architect of Thought. However, she is green and blue, so that's not a very popular color combination. And, you know, her plus one may or may not have any effect, depending on what your deck looks like. So I think if there's any kind of control deck that's splashing green, this will be great. If there's a mid-range ramp deck in these colors, it'd be good. But I can't imagine just jamming her into, like, any deck. Like, she has to fit in a certain shell. But otherwise, like, I think she's really sweet, and I just want to use her ultimate. Like, that's that's one of the best (laughs) ultimates ever. Like, it it probably kind of sucks. It's, like, not that good. Like, it'll finish the game, right? But there are better ultimates for that. But just the fact that you get to dig into your deck box and pull out three eight eight octopus, <laughs> and then you get to fight, like, that is so sweet. <laughs> yeah, I really... I do think she's good. I think she's probably a bit better than the first iteration of Kiora, uh, in the sense that she starts out with a little more loyalty, so you kind of get that buffer. Her abilities are a little easier to manipulate and, and utilize and in a good way. It cuts off at that four mana, that four converted mana cost, so maybe it could somehow end up in modern at some point. The, the four is kind of that cutoff. But yeah, like, like you said, Richard, green-blue is not like the most popular uh, color combination, but she's by no means bad. Yeah, I, I do think she's she's solid. Very solid. What do you all think of the current pre-order price? Are you, are you a, a buy at her pre-order price, Corbin? Probably not, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, Planeswalkers haven't been a good buy pre-order since Chase the Mind Sculptor, you know. And <laughs> yeah. With everything we talked about, that 18 to $20 is certainly not going to hold up a month from now. Maybe it's the sort of thing that, you know, basically any card that's in that 15 to $20 range, if it has a good Pro Tour, can spike to 40 for a weekend, but it's just not worth it. You know, the, the risk is, does not justify the reward there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a- actually kind of surprised she start uh, started under 20. I will say that. I'm, I'm surprised she did start under 20. So, uh, yeah, let's let's move along, Richard. All right. Obnixilis, reignited. So the demon yes. got his spark back. Uh, he's three black black, five converted mana costs, starts with five loyalty. Uh, plus one is you draw a card and you lose one life. Minus three, destroy target creature. Minus eight, target opponent gets an emblem with whenever a player draws a card, you lose two life. Corbin, what do you think? Uh, I mean, it's a card, right? <laughs> no, I, <it's, laughs> it is. It is a card. <laughs> I don't think it's incredible, um, but I think it is. It is pretty good. You know, I think the most common use of it is going to come down as a five, destroy a creature, and then likely get killed. But then again, if you construct your deck around it, it may get destroy a creature in the second round. And if you're able to pull off that line, it's very good. So I, I think it will see play. I don't think it's like an auto four of or anything like that. Um, but it certainly could slot into maybe an Esper deck that's also running Narset Transcendent or just a blue-black control deck or something. It's it's powerful enough to see play, but I don't think it's going to necessarily warp decks around it. Seth? Uh, I really like this card. I I don't think it'll see that much play. I'm thinking probably like one or at the most two of play in control decks, but... I mean, it draws a card for its plus ability, which you have me right there. Like, I cannot resist a Planeswalker that lets you draw a card every turn. And in the worst case, it's uh, Unholy Hunger, I think, the card from Magic Origins that destroy target creature, you gain two life. Like, that's the thing I like about Obnixilis is some Planeswalkers get stuck in your hand because you know if you cast them, you're going to gain a really minimal advantage, and then it's just going to die. 
with Obnixilis, at the worst case, it's a five mana uh, unconditional removal spell. So on any board state, you can play this and get some amount of value. Because if there's nothing on your opponent's side of the board, then you can just tick him up and grind them out with card advantage. So I like the idea of it, but I still think at five mana, it's probably a one or two of. Yeah, I agree with you, Seth. Uh, I mean, you're not wrong. I, I really do. I do like this as kind of that one, two of in, in like a control list. I think it's very powerful uh, for what it does. Uh, the art is badass, to be honest. And I, I love uh, Obnixilis. I love the character kind of having going full circle back to uh, Planeswalker uh, status. So that has that going for it. Lou Scott Vargas agrees with you, Seth, that like this, this Planeswalker is basically doing what a Planeswalker, what you want a Planeswalker to do. Every turn it's out, it's giving you advantage. So for every turn that they don't kill it, it's winning you the game. And by drawing you cards removing their board presence, and then the ultimate kind of is just, I don't know if you'd ever really want to use it, but it's kind of like a, what was that card from uh, Innistrad? Uh, Curse of the something that dealt you like a damage every turn um, at an accelerated rate. So yeah, I think it's really good for its cost, but yeah, it's kind of delegated to that Liliana Vest one to two of, just to kind of uh, shore up uh, your deck list, your control deck list. Yeah, I think I think that last comparison to Liliana is is the best one there. Where like he's okay in a vacuum, but his converted mana cost is so high that you can't afford to jam multiples in your deck. And I actually don't think he's that good. Like his abilities individually are really good, but you're paying five mana. Remember, like Sarkin Unbroken does almost the same thing, right? Plus one draw a card out of mana, right? Seasonal play, right? At five mana, you got to get a lot out of your planeswalker, so. He's okay in the slower matchups where you're trying to grind out card advantage and the game's going to go long. But if you're playing an aggro deck and you pay five mana and minus three of them, like, that's a losing proposition. So I don't like that, and I don't like his flavor and his art. I think his art is ridiculous. What? His art is ridiculous. I'm going to put it out there. And Get out of here. His <laughs> abilities are just like generic black abilities thrown on a card. There's no flavor, right? There's no. How, how is Phyrexian Arena as an ability bad? Like it's not. It's not a bad ability. It's just three black abilities that are good thrown on a card. Like I mean, isn't that good? There you go. It's I mean, good I... for like mechanical play, but not for flavor. Right? I'm Where's impressed the flavor? that I'm impressed that you know what we're like six or seven years past the existence of Planeswalkers. We can have one with this little text on it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like look at Kiora. It's a freaking novel compared to Obnixilis. No, yeah, it is true. It's like, here's good three black, like, spells that are in magic on a Planeswalker. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, like, if you look at all of the recent Planeswalkers, they all have unique effects, right? Whereas Obnixilis doesn't do anything unique. He just does, like, good magic card stuff, right? So that's why I don't like him as a mythic, you know, as a flavor guy. But talk about complaining about a hundred dollar bills, like dude, man, you're really gonna this complain about flavor. <laughs> I want to feel like I'm casting a big badass demon. Like Gristlebrand feels more badass than this guy, right? Like Gristlebrand's like really broken. I mean, like, <laughs> why are you comparing that? That's a demon, but yeah, flavor wise, meh. But you'll see him in the sideboard of control decks, so yeah, maybe like a one of in the main deck too. Yeah, yeah. More controversial so... things coming. <laughs> Yeah, why don't you uh, keep us going there, Richard? Undergrowth Champion. Yes! One green green. He's a 2-2 two, two elemental. 
If damage would be dealt to Undergrowth Champion while it has a plus one, plus one counter on it, prevent the damage and remove a plus one, plus one counter. Landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on Undergrowth Champion. Corbin? I think this card's really good. <laughs> I don't know if I'm alone in that, but you put this thing next no, to Death No, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, put it next to Death Miss Raptor and maybe Master of the Unseen and Dim Protector and all of these things, and you just have this deck that is so resilient to, to the traditional forms of removal. It's just another piece in that deck. Between Death Miss this and a Hangerback Walker, it's really hard to get rid of creatures. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Seth? Well, the thing is, though, sure, it's good against some things, but a Ruinous Path or an Ultimate Price, like, just ruins your entire plan and all the work you put into this guy. Like, it's right. resilient to some forms of removal, but not the most played removal in the format, if this format is, like, our last one. So, if you look at... That's why I think it, it's very dependent on the context around it, because if they're they have ruinous path in their deck, they have to save it for this. But what if you're just killing him with a Decimus Raptor instead? Then they have to ruinous path that, and it comes back. And you have, I don't know. It just seems like you can present between Hangerback Walker, Undergrowth Champion, uh, Den Protector, and Deathmiss Raptor. You can present so many creatures that. Even if they themselves are not resilient to everything, as a whole, your deck is just always going to have gas. Do you think you can play this guy alongside Death Mist, though? Like, can you play eight double green three drops in the same deck? It's a slow, it's going to, I mean, it's post-rotation in the format, it's not going to be any slower than, it'll. you know, like, there's the fewest number of cards to build with, so it's not going to be as streamlined of decks. And I guess it's possible. I- and, I, and this is almost like Courser, a four drop, where you get the most advantage if you wait a turn and can immediately play a fetch land and get counters to protect it from a roast or something. Yeah. So, yeah. I, well, I mean, the double green, I mean, it, it seems like you're getting rewarded by the duo colors with these um, slow lands or whatever you want. I, I, we're still, in the, we, we don't know. The community doesn't know what we're calling them still. So <laughs> uh, I'll just say the Zen lands. But. So I, I don't think the triple, the double green is actually that big of a deal. I, I really like this card. I, I really do. And not just because I like green, but um, sure. I mean, go ahead. Use your removal on it. I mean, Tarmogoyf dies to all the same stuff. Do we not play Tarmogoyf, Seth? Well, but Tarmogoyf, like <laughs> cards that die to removal and are good are above the curve. This guy's a 2-2 for three mana. Like, that's way below the curve. Yo, I know, I know... You were in a band and like Nantuko Shade or Phantom Nantuko was before your time, but Phantom Nantuko was like really awesome back in the day, and this but, is like a really much better version. But this is Nantuko built to, or, to, to not be like that though, because one of the powers uh, with the Phantom creatures is if you can boost their toughness, they're indestructible, right? Like, isn't that one of the the synergies with those cards? Well. The Phantoms really only ever, wait, they only ever really went down, and that's why Phantom Nantuko was really so good, because it can keep counters on itself. This can keep counters on itself, because it, you're playing lands anyway. I mean, it, it's not that hard to really increase this the, the counters on this card. I mean, you don't need you. to make him a 5-5. Five five. Yeah, it rewards you for playing Magic. Right, you don't need to make him huge. He doesn't die in combat. But, guys, it's really bad when your mana's screwed. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm gonna have to side with Seth here. I, I think he's a role player. I think he's good in certain decks. Like if you're playing it's a red deck, yeah, this thing stonewalls red really bad. Right? So mono red's not gonna be happy playing against this guy. But he's more of a control finisher in my opinion. You throw him down, you kinda get a couple blocks off with him, and then five turns later you've actually played enough lands for him to become a threat and then you start beating down. Like, I don't think he wants to be in aggressive decks. I don't think he wants to be, even in mid-range decks that, uh, you know, pre-board when they're just playing the mid-range game, because he's really slow. He's a three-mana 2-2, two -two, and he gets wild-slashed on the first turn still, right? Like, he dies to a lot of things, so that tempo loss is huge, right? Like, would you not just play a guild leader, you know, like a 4-4 four -four that does something crazy? He doesn't die to a wild-slash. If they have spell mastery, is that the one that can't damage? No, it's not. No, does he not die? It's ferocious. It's no. ferocious. No. Damage can't be prevented this turn, right? Yeah, if yeah. you have... If oh, you have, right. If, if he has ferocious, yeah. yeah. But, so like, red still has ways. But you're right. But you're right. So red has problems, right? If you if you hold the roast in hand, yeah, this guy's going to screw you over. But I don't know, like... He'll, he'll have play in certain decks, but I don't see him being jammed in every green deck, which I think is a hallmark of good magic design. But I don't think this is, like you know, a Tarmogoyf or a voice where you kind of just jam them in if you play the colors. I don't know, man. I think otherwise. I, you, think? I think, you think every yeah. green deck will jam him? <laughs> I mean, he's really good. I I mean, I'm still like thinking of the idea like what Corbin was saying. Like, if you have a hanger bag, then this guy, and you have the Death Mist Raptor, Den Protector, like, tandem combo, I mean, that's a lot of stuff that's very hard to remove. But why don't you I just mean, play Anafenza? Like... Well, you probably play that as well, right? But if 12 of the cards in your deck all take very specific removal answers. Your opponent can get punished by keeping Ruinous Path against Death Mist or Roast against, you know, like there's just, it presents a very difficult, uh, varied line of attack in a shell that was already good. You know, like Green White, Death Mist Raptor decks with Den Protector, that was already sort of a deck that existed. This fits into that, and, you know, that, I mean, Magic's all about creature interaction these days you know and this interacts undergrowth interacts pretty well with creatures so <laughs> yeah he really does and and that's assuming like I, I understand he dies to like ultimate price and ruinous path and all that but i mean that's assuming like every deck is going to be playing those cards i mean that's a very specific type of removal like corbin was saying like what does jess guy do to this guy do you, they could bounce him uh, somehow but other than that i mean what, what do you really do to him you can't really kill him I think you're going to see an increase in cards like Stasis Snare, uh, which is the new Banishing Light with Flash. Yeah. Things that answer Hangerback for one, I think, is going to sort of define the, the format uh, in the first couple months. It just so happens that those cards are also very good against Seth Miss and Undergrowth Champions. So I think there's going to be a lot of value in those cards. Yeah. Utter End, like you said, uh, Stasis Snare, all those cards are going to be favored just because, you know, they, they get rid of them totally and don't have to have any, like... Den Protector shenanigans. But yeah, I really do like Undergrowth Champion. That's kind of like an understatement. But uh, let's, let's move forward, Richard. All right. Uh, so the surprise announcement. Hey, guys, we actually have man lands in the set. Lumbering we Falls. Do, so Lumbering Falls, it's a rare land. Enters a battlefield tap. Uh, you tap it to add a green and a blue to your mana pool. And you can pay two green and a blue, so four total. Uh, Lumbering Falls becomes a 3-3 green and blue elemental creature with hexproof until end of turn. It's still a land. Corbin? Uh, this card is... Well, I, I guess I have a couple things. One, I think this card is obviously playable in decks 
you know, if Teemer is a deck, this would be very good in it, because that's a deck that wants creatures. Um, so on and so forth, manlands are always good. I think it's a little weird that we're getting only two or three of these in this set, rather than the full cycle. Yeah, uh, it is a little weird. But anyways, no, I mean, this will be played in any deck that basically is green and blue and may not be relevant all of the time, but it's a temple that, instead of scrying, becomes a hexproof creature. It's certainly playable. Seth? Yeah, I mean... Basically, I don't think this is one of the better ban lands if you compare to the original cycle. I'd be interested to see what you guys think. Where would you rank this uh, out of the six man lands that we've seen so far, including the original World Wake ones? I mean, but it's playable. It's a man land, and man lands are always playable. It's a dual land, so, I mean, you can't go wrong with it. But where would you rank it out of the six lands that we've seen? I think under all of the originals, even Lava Claw. Lava Claw? Maybe, I mean, yeah. at, least you, at least you can fire breathe. I mean, this is yeah. only ever going to hit for three. Lava Claw was a player in standard. The vampire decks, at the time, the red-black vampire decks, even if you got rid of all the vampires, sometimes the Lava Claw would just hit you for five in two turns, you know? Yeah. it was. I mean, it's not, like, so much better, but I think it is better a little bit. Richard, sorry, what do you, what do you yeah. think of the card? I think you guys are correct, but this is probably the least effective of the cards, but it still doesn't matter. It's a man land. So right. it's, it's still really good, and you're still going to play it if you're playing these colors, because, hey, you know, free dude later on is awesome. Um, I don't think he's good enough to break into modern or legacy or anything like that. The Lumbering Falls is, you know, like, like we just discussed, like the worst of all the existing manlands. Um, but, you know, I, I think the excitement here is what it opens up for the other colors. Like, what is the red-white right. yeah, going to look I, like, I, right? <laughs> like, so... I, yeah. Blue-red and Splinter Twin. I yeah. think a lot of is riding on the blue-red one. I think a lot of people are eager to see that. And just imagine Abzan with Manland now. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> right? Well, like, yeah, I do agree with your assessment, Richard. I don't. I think this is a good standard role player. I, I don't think it'll really ever get into the modern scene. That's not to say none of them will, but I don't think this particular one will because... I mean, we do have good manlands that don't see play. I mean, Fairy Conclave is a really good one that doesn't see a lot of play. Fringe, I guess, but it doesn't see a lot of play. So not all manlands end up making the cut, but uh, this will be good and serviceable for Standard. Oh, but Fairy Conclave would be played like crazy if it was in Standard, right? Mm -hmm. In Standard, yeah. So, I mean... This card's going to see, I mean, any man land is good in standard. That Any right. man land that's been printed, like, maybe this card won't see playing modern, but even the worst man lands are standard playable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Could the, what color would it be? Would it be green-black? Thinking about Jund, the deck that are, and the modern deck that already runs a bunch of man lands. It could benefit from one of these, depending on how that card, you know, turns out yeah. to be. Yeah, I think, yeah, we get the black. It has to be Which really good, get? though, because yeah. Jun already has right. Raging right. and Treetop Village. Wait, is Treetop Village modern legal? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So they have a lot of good man lands. <laughs> they do, yeah. Oh, sorry, d- before we move on. So pre-order prices for Obnixilis and Lumbering Falls, are, are, are you liking them? Oh, and Undergrowth Champion. Does anyone like them right now? So, so currently Obnixilis is about 15 bucks. Undergrowth Champion's about 10 Lumbering Falls is like 8 Pass. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming you too, Seth. Oh, here's the thing. 
I was crunching some of the numbers, and if you assume what everyone's assuming, that expeditions are going to be like 50 for the worst ones, 100 for shocks, 200 plus for fetches, the average mythic price from this set's going to have to be about 3 bucks, which isn't unreasonable. KTK mythics are currently 274 on average. So we're going to be looking at super low, like no mythic in this set can I feel comfortable saying it's going to be worth more than $10. Hmm. Interesting. Like, I don't think there's any way, like, every one that you pick at $10, you have to pick another Mythic to be a bulk Mythic. And if you pick $20, you got to pick two or more to be bulk Mythic. So it's just, there's not value to go around in this set. So I think every pre-order, there could be a rare or two, but every card you ask me about, I'm going to say no, I think. <laughs> All right, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. And I think, really, more of the value is in the lower... Uh, underpriced rares, so the like the rares under a dollar that can maybe like go up to two dollars. I mean that's still good value, but that's really where you're trying to find the value because you're right, Seth. I mean, from just the pro- preliminary numbers, you're going to have to ask a lot of some of these cards to maintain some semblance of a price over ten dollars. Uh, so I think that's correct. Let's move along, Richard. All right, so let's talk about. Uh... This card that Seth really likes, Bring to Light, three green and a blue. Uh, it's a sorcery, and it has Converge. Search your library for a creature, instant, or sorcery card with converted mana costs less than or equal to the number of colors of mana spent casting Bring to Light. Exile that card, shuffle your library. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. So I know we've been starting with you, Corbin, but since Seth clearly likes this card <laughs> for some reason, I don't... We'll start with you, Seth. This card is insane. Like, this card, I think this card has potential to be broken somewhere. I think you everyone's underestimating how powerful it is to tutor for something and put it directly into play. Like, if you have a five-color deck, which isn't unreasonable in a land of fetch lands, searching out dual lands, if you can play a five-color mana base, you can literally pick any card out of your deck that you need for any given situation and play it with this card. You can pick out your combo piece that you need in Modern. You can pick out a Wrath. You can pick out a removal spell that you need to remove the Torpor Orb that's stopping your combo. Like, sooner or later, I think this card will be broken somewhere. <sighs> I, think, I, th- I think this is a bulk rare. <laughs> I'm going to give you the opposite end of the spectrum. It costs too much mana. Yeah, I, that's where I was going. Standard, standard, yeah. absolutely. Uh, it's so much man in modern. Sweet commander card, though. Very good commander card. Probably has a good shot in standard. But I was, I was, I was like modern. I mean, man, gifts on given is barely even played. Yeah. You know, and that gets you four cards at instant speed. Yeah, the but source play them. <laughs> but you still have them. I mean, like they still have to deal with them at some point. I just like, don't think of a single deck in modern that wants to pay five mana to go get a particular card out of their deck. <laughs> that is also blue-green, you know? But, like, but is, there, is there a card... If you had Demonic Tutor in Modern, and the restriction was it had to... The card had to ca- uh, cost three or less, would you play it? Well, I wouldn't pay five mana for it. No, but it's the same as paying two mana and then paying three to cast it the same turn, right? Like, I could see an argument for that being the case in Modern. Like, I don't know if I'm as gung-ho as Seth. Like, I can see it showing up in Modern, but I think it's definitely playable in Standard, and it's actually really good in Standard. I mean, yeah, there's a big difference, because you can tutor 
on two. I, like, I don't like that. You that can that's put your computer correct. on two and hold it in your hand, and you have to have five mana to play this card. Yeah, but yeah. actually, now you mention it, so going to the other end, Dark Petition, right? The, yeah, yeah. That's not seeing play, so maybe maybe this is not that good for modern. I mean, what decks <laughs> are even blue-green that would want it? Amulet? Yeah, and then, like, what, you're trying to maybe yeah, fit in Bring color. the Light? Like, you splash the green to play Bring the Light. This yeah. Am- Amulet Bloom could play the card, I guess. But, I mean, what are you really getting with this? In blue? Yeah. But, in, uh... Yeah. You guys, uh, how can you not see how powerful this is? I, I see it's really strong in standard. <laughs> I, I see I mean, five color siege rhino decks coming. Well, I mean, it's a it's a it's a strong card, but that doesn't always translate to success in constructed. Like, you know, I go back to my stinker. I mean, I, I thought Underworld Cerberus was like going to be like like devastating creature you could probably ever come up against. It was like bigger than everything that that was even in the format at the time, and it was just black red. Like, but, this is blue-green. Like, what's really, like, what are you really getting? Like, uh, do you really want to cast a cryptic command off of this? Like, right then, at that point. But if you if you go down the list of cards that can grab something from your deck and immediately put it on the battlefield, it's a pretty short list, and almost every single one of those cards is either banned in Legacy or Modern or playable in those formats. Like, well, Green Sun Zenith, Tinker... Um, Court of Calling, uh, and this does more than those because you can search out a spell when the situation calls for it. But like, to be fair, Cord is not even a four of and a lot of decks that can play it. It's right. like a one or two of. And That's, Cord's a lot more flexible than Bring to Light. In some ways, but Cord can't search out a Wrath of God randomly when you're behind on the board. I mean, I just don't. I mean, if this was an instant, I think I would be right on board with you, but am I even like reading this right? So if you... Play this for five, and you actually just play pay the blue green. You get a converted mana cost two card. Correct. And you have to have. How a are lot you of so colors. excited about this? I don't like. You're paying five mana to get a two mana. Oh, no, card. You, you don't play the well, card if that's your deck, right? You play the it's card realistically. Or five color deck, right? But those All don't right. even exist, I mean, right? Four color gifts maybe plays. Yeah, this. but, but I mean, how exists? That's not how hard. Is it you to can play... warp your mana to accommodate for this, right? But this like, card is card not good enough. To... This card just cannot be good enough to warp modern. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I just, I'm not seeing it. You guys wait and see. <laughs> I, I, I am personally going to warp modern with this card. Or, uh, die, or die trying. <laughs> I, think, I think myself, Richard, and Corbin will be waiting a long time. I'm in the middle here. I'm in the middle. I think... Standard, playable, modern, eh, <laughs> possible. Not as outlandish as you guys think it is. But I, I said this off cast to you guys before, and I'll let the listeners know. So if you do follow Seth, the, the modern deck with this card in it wasn't totally horrible. It looked interesting. I will, I will say that again. It looked interesting. <laughs> I'll All take right. that as a compliment. <laughs> okay, there you go. So it looked interesting. Let's go on to the last card that I like a lot, actually. All right. Fathom Feeder, the blue-black, so that's, that's it, blue-black is his mana cost, so two converted mana cost, it's a 1-1 one, one Eldrazi drone, it has the Void, Death Touch, and Ingest, and uh, you can pay three blue and a black, so five total, uh, draw a card, each opponent exiles the top card of his or her library. So why do you like this again? Uh, I'll let you go first, Corbin. You guys remember the, oh, Baleful Strix? I do. Uh, that card is yeah. legacy playable. It's also <laughs> this card, tricks. I, yeah, it's, I 
This card is not that. However, if you this is probably a four of in any sort of control deck that is blue and black and standard. It will trade with whatever big creature they play, and it's also an extremely good top deck later on. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's great on turn two, and it's great on turn seven. Yeah, and I, I it's not even just blue. Like, if you can play the colors blue-black, I think four of this and four Jace is, like, a really good set of creatures you can be playing. Yeah. I mean, this is really... I mean, that's a lot of abilities on one card. I mean, I understand, like... Ingest is not. <laughs> yeah, I, care, right. yeah, I care about. I care about two of them. <laughs> right, two of them are are what we are really interested in, and I mean the ingest. Like, yeah, maybe it could like end up being goods at some point. Maybe like you ingest a key card off the top of their library or something like that. That's probably not going to happen as often as <laughs> you may think it's going to happen. But really, the death touch and and the card later on. I mean, it's just decent. It, it's decent early on and gets better as it goes along. So that's really what Control wants. I mean, it, it's serviceable in the beginning when you really even can't use the ability, and then a lot better when you can use the ability, especially late into the game. And like you said, Corbin, it's really even still good off the top. So, sorry, Seth, go ahead. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I I don't think it'll be format-breaking, but it's a good value creature. It's exactly what you guys said. And I love drawing cards, so I'm sure I will be playing this card. <laughs> so, uh, and it's a bulk rare. That's what's awesome. Yeah. You think so? You think it's what? a bulk rare? No, no, no. I'm saying it's Are a bulk rare right now. Right. The pre- yeah. Pre-order price on this is a dollar. If you're looking yeah. for somewhere with some sort of upside in the set, if this is a four of in a control deck that does well with the Rotor, it's going to spike to ten bucks, and that's the best like ROI anything I've seen of anything in the set. Yeah, uh, I mean, these started out under a dollar, if you can even believe it. Star City opened it up at like forty nine cents, and those went real fast. And I'm talking like really fast. So it's currently at a dollar, a dollar twenty five. Uh, it kept like increasing. It went to forty nine, then ninety nine. Now at one twenty five, as we're doing the cast and. I agree with you, Corbin. I, I loved this card under a dollar. It was just so – it was really good. Uh, I think the value under one dollar is, uh, like we said earlier in the cast, is where we were trying to find that value in the set. Just trade for every single one of these at a dollar. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you, you give away like one battle land and get, you know, like five or six of these. I <laughs> think that's yeah. fine, you know, like – and then you have – you have by the end of the day like ten to fifteen of them, uh, and if they have a good pro tour, you have, you're the guy at the LGS who has them, and they're all you know five to ten dollars each. Yeah, Richard, wait, what do you wait, think wait. before we move along? You guys are smoking. <laughs> Why are you so hot <laughs> on this? This is like sideboard material. What? Like, play typhoid rats, man. It's like a one-one death touch. Like what? You need, you need I do to like pay typhoid rats. Five mana to draw a card, so you need to live a really long time, right? So. But most it's the time, speed, and it's a blue-black control deck, right? Sure, yeah. but most of the time it's going to come down and, like, block and, like, die immediately, and, like, that was it, right? And I don't know that you would jam Typhoid Rats in your deck, main deck. Look, Richard, Typhoid Rats <laughs> will never, ever draw you a card. I don't know. Like, I think people see it, and they see <laughs> Baleful Strix, but it it doesn't replace itself immediately, and it doesn't fly. Like, those are two really big things, and if you're really looking just for, like, a Death Toucher on the ground, like... I don't know, man. So I, mean, I, I think it's a it's like Nick's fleece ram, right? Like, yeah, okay, it's such good a good against decision. aggro against aggro decks, but you're not gonna freaking main deck it unless you know you think that's the whole meta, right? 
to be I'm that's an anti-aggro card that you might bring in. That also I mean, really, has value in the control matchups where you get a draw card. Yeah. I mean, it's really good, like, in every matchup at every stage of the game. I mean, it, it, I don't, like, you don't really want to block him, so it's like, and, and a control deck, honestly, it's still even giving you card advantage if you happen to get this out uh, before them or something like that, or if, you know, they don't really even play a Fathom Feeder or something like that, no early game. This could ingest a, a, a good amount of cards. But remember, uh, like, if, if left... that, doesn't, that doesn't mean much to me. Yeah. That You might as well just take the land off the top of their deck they don't need and give them a real tar card. You know, it's just, like, that ability is just basically meaningless to me unless you also have something like a, Oblivion Sower in your deck, which is possible, and then you right. can get some value off of it. But Well, I, I'm just talking about specifically in the control game. I mean, they're kind of losing their their top decks, and you're still... You still haven't invested in anything. Like, you just played a creature. Yeah. Remember Azermage? Like, you would side Azermage in against other control decks and, like, against hyper-aggressive decks, but, you know, it's... To me, it's kind of the same card. Like, this kills more things than Azermage, but Azermage got on the beatdown a bit better, but it basically sat there as a creature that could draw cards later on. And that was, like, fringe sideboard playable at best, right? Well, I think I, guess the, my whole I think the fact that it trades with their three drop or their four drop or is a lot different than you know playing a two one Azur Mage in a <laughs> yeah. format which was much more powerful than this format. Right. I mean, to me, my whole argument, I, I think it's a solid card. I just think it's better than a dollar. I, I just, I mean, that's really my whole argument. I just don't think. I, I think it's better than a dollar. How much was like Sin Collector? Like like those kind of cards were they oh, man, more than a dollar or less than a dollar? I don't even remember. Oh. Sin Collector uh, maybe topped out at like two. It was an uncommon though. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, you're right. It was uncommon. Was it? Yes, Sin it was. Oh yeah. Oh right. I was thinking of another card. Sorry. So, yeah, I mean, but this is kind of still better than a Sin Collector. Yeah. Well, the thing oh. is, I, I basically see this card as being a four of in any sort of control deck, and I see it being maybe two or three dollars over the lifetime. But it's the card. I've seen out of this set that the most excites me over the first month, you know, cause I mean, you, yeah. you can get so many of these for a dollar and give up basically nothing to get them. And then it takes one deck to top eight, one control deck with four of these to top eight, the pro tour for you to just like quintuple up on them. You know, that's, yeah, I, that's where I'm going with this too. It's, it's the, uh, Thopter spy network of this set. I think the underdog, <laughs> 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 I'll give you guys that. It might be better than bulk. <laughs> there, the, thank. That's, it has that's potential. That's really all I but... ever argue. That's that's really the crux of my argument is that it's better than a bulk rare on some of these. So I think that's it for spoilers, Corbin. That was awesome. Let's let's answer some fish mail, and I think uh, that will wrap it up. So one of the fish mail we kind of touched on, right, Richard? Actually, we no. yeah, one of these. So someone. Confused, so uh, sack under slash bala nine one six. I've been, I've seen you state finding boxes at or near seventy five dollars. Where is that like local game store vendors looking for cheap these cheap boxes when the first print run becomes the second print run? So basically, the question is, where do you get the seventy five dollar boxes, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when does the first print run end and the second print run begin? So. Seth, you created this confusion, so you answer. Okay, I can help you with the first part. Uh, you do not get $75 boxes. <laughs> that is the answer. 
What I was saying, and I think maybe I didn't come across clearly in the article, is that the value of the cards in a box, so we talk about the expected value of the cards you'll open, the value of those cards that you'll open from the box will probably start out $125 or maybe even more for Battle of Zendikar, but the price of the cards in the box will end up being $75 or less after a month or two as the sets opened and supply increases. So you're not going to find booster boxes for that price, just to clear that up. And maybe Corbin can help us with the second part, because I am not exactly sure when print runs switch from the first to the second print run. I'm not sure. I think that it basically comes down to the first, you know, the first wave that distributors get. And I don't necessarily know how much that is. I think it probably means it's certainly not more than a month of product at an LGS, I think. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert on this, but that's sort of my impression is that you can, you know, for maybe up a month after the set comes out, you could theoretically find a first run box, but it may be as short as like two weeks. That's right. what I would have guessed that, but I really like you. I don't really have any idea. That's not really my expertise by any means. And it's honestly uh-huh. that's mattered since like the original Zendikar, right? So yeah. it's been, yeah. even I work at an LG, I, you know, I work with an LGS selling cards there and I know when our stuff comes in and all of that, but I still never, you know, cared to find out what is first run and what isn't. So. So that was my question. So given everything we know right now, there's actually no difference between a first print run and a second print run as Wizards has stated currently, right? Uh, they haven't, not right now. I mean, but it's, yeah, never, like, like, is there any it's never really mattered. Well, they yeah. haven't, they haven't, I haven't seen them say that the expeditions were, are only a first print run thing. I think they're probably an every print run thing because they haven't announced that, you know? Yeah. So. I would assume if they didn't say it, it's the opposite. Right. Yeah. So. But currently it's not relevant if you get a first print run or a second print run. Is right. That what you're saying? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they never made any distinction to when these stop, like when they stop getting inserted into packs. So we have to assume that uh, for as long as Battle for Zendikar is printed and distributed, you're going to get a, a chance at Expedition cards. All right, so moving on to fish mail, Tomer at Budget Commander, do you think Chinese counterfeits will ever become a serious problem? Corbin. That's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I've actually <laughs> I've put a lot of thought and a lot of hours into fighting this fight. I think that we're a long way from them becoming a serious problem in the sense that they're going to crash the market or anything like that. Yeah. Could they? Probably not. Simply put, they can't print as many cards in China in the 1 to 2, you know, counterfeiting rings that can actually make a card look semi-realistic to significantly eat into the numbers uh, from the, you know, from, from the rest of the cards being printed. So that said, it all entirely comes down to a confidence thing. And if people get the impression that they're, you know, going to destroy the market, then that can, the bottom could sort of fall out. That said, I've, it's been probably a year and a half or at least a year. And I see reports of, oh, perfect counterfeits coming out of China. But Magic just continues to chug along. So, you know, I get really personally upset when people try to defend the existence of counterfeits, but I don't think that they're destroying our game, you know? Yeah, I don't think it's come to a point where I, I agree with you, Corbin, that way you can't safely buy a fetch land without having it be fake. Like, I, I understand it does happen, but I don't think we're at that point or anywhere near that point where 
if you go out to buy the specific counterfeit, even like a Tarmogoyf or something like that, that you have to worry about it being fake. What? You don't you don't believe so? So I agree with Corbin that the magic economy is probably not going to collapse. But if I'm going to buy an underground sea, like yeah, I'm going to have to like triple check it. Like wait, you're going to have to the fakes is right. Out there, you, right? you triple check it, but just from an odds standpoint, the odds are that it's real. Right. And right and like, but the fact I, that I have to check it all means it's a thing, right? Like well, yeah, I mean, you would you would want to check. Period. I mean. Why? You're going to check it anyway. Like, when you go buy a PS4, do you look at it and say, is this a counterfeit PS4? Like, no, right? You just assume it's real. But with Magic cards, you actually have to check. So it's starting to become a problem. Whether or not it actually, like, becomes a widespread problem and, you know, vintage and legacy prices just crash is, I, I don't know. I don't think that's a problem. But definitely, if you play with the older cards, you have to make sure they're real, right? Like, counterfeits are out there. Yeah, I wasn't discounting like that it's not a problem. I was coming at it from it's not going to deter you from wanting to buy uh said cards. Like yeah, I'm not I agree with that. That's... Like I'm not like totally afraid of ever buying a dual land because I think it's a fake. I I think that the bigger problem to some extent is people's the community's attitude towards these products. Corbin kind of hinted at it, but there is a significant portion of the community that thinks magic cards are too expensive and likes these forgeries and are in support of these forgeries and want them to crash the market. And that part scares me a little bit. That's, that that's the true danger. Yeah. 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 And Corbin, you've spoken out about this. Um, if any of you out there are listening and know Corbin, uh, we all uh, have seen you talk about this fairly extensively and honestly, a lot more than I think you should even be talking about uh, something I, like that, to be honest. You no, know, that's, that's, you know, and you're right. That's the balance you kind of have to find between, are you giving them too much publicity at some point or that, you know, I don't know. I feel for me, it's very simple. We all know what magic is when we started play. It's a collectible card game. Cards cost money it's for people with disposable income. It is what it is. But if you care about the future of magic and you want to be playing this game in 10 years, you cannot support counterfeits. You are right. either supporting the company that makes this game and puts all this work into it and all these things and where's the coast by trusting them to manage their market or you're supporting criminals who are trying to destroy the market, but make some money while doing so. It's really just a binary choice to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Yep. So last uh, question, uh, MTG focus podcast. What's the downside to buying a Japanese case of battle for Zendikar versus English? Is there a downside? Uh, it's going to be a lot harder to sell the cards over here, uh, in my experience, <laughs> at least. <laughs> uh, it's a hell of a lot more uh, investment, that's for sure. So the expeditions will be in English, right? They've confirmed right. that Correct. it's always in English, no matter the language of your booster box. Right. So there is no, like, it's, this is the same question for every other set then, right? Like, do you want a Japanese case or no? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. <thought>? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can't like, understand any when, of the cards. The, the only time it can be, I guess, defensible to do it is when you're looking at something like cons, where if you open a foil Japanese fetch land, it's, you're going to get, you know, what, six, $700 at the time they came out. I know somebody, a friend of mine, had one sold it for that. But you look at a set like this, man, there's not enough 
eternal playables. Like you're really playing the lottery when you get four in boxes because you need the foil legacy playable card. Right. When something like this, where the most expensive cards are the expeditions and they're in English no matter what, there's just no reason to pay more for it. And on the other side, the five dollar cards you have that are non foil are impossible to move because nobody wants a Japanese, uh, you know, prairie stream that's. <laughs> Just non foil. Like, people are either all in or all out on those cards. Yeah, the, the yeah. Budget I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny, like, how that has changed, like, as I've been playing. Like, a while back, like, people didn't care, like, if they were, you know, a standard card during standard. They wanted the Japanese card, even if it was a non foil. It, it's just funny to me, like, how we've, like, full circle. And it's, I'm not paying more to get a Japanese, like, Prairie Stream or, you know, the black red one. Uh, <laughs> uh, for my deck one, it's just like a standard card. I don't really care. Would the answer be different if the expeditions were in their languages in Russian, absolutely. Japanese? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely different uh, conversation. <laughs> um, Which is honestly be... probably one of the reasons they chose to only print them in English, so yep. they didn't just randomly make thousand dollar cards. You know. <laughs> yeah, we saw that issue with. When they opened up uh, Modern Masters 2015 to other countries, mm-hmm. and people were just trying to just hoard the Japanese boxes. So I-, I can see why they did that. You're absolutely right, Corbin. Yeah, so I-, I think that's it for Fish Mail. Yeah, so we went over spoilers. We talked about Battle for Zendikar. We did uh, Fish Mail. I-, I think we did everything. And uh, we-, we appreciate you taking the time to answer those questions with us, Corbin. Hey, I appreciate you guys uh, letting me, <laughs> having me yeah. on. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, we, we really appreciate you coming on, Corbin. It was great to have you on the cast. Any kind of just final thoughts about anything we talked about? Any, all three of you? I like huh? this set a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like this, I, like, I think it's like Innistrad level in terms of flavor. Like the cards they're putting out are just so sweet and most of them aren't standard playable, like, but I still really like them, which says something because I'm like actually a spike. The flavor on Undergrowth Champion, top notch. Right, Desolation Twin we didn't talk about, Kiora, like all these cards are just awesome and I'm really excited to play Battle for Zendikar, which um, I haven't been this excited for like a really long time, maybe since like Innistrad. So I think Wizards is just continually doing like a better and better job at these new sets. So we'll see how long this can go on and when the next Stinker will come out. But so far, great job, Wizards. Yeah, I'm I'm really um, excited for it too. And we touched upon it earlier. All three of us, all four of us, are tied to the financial side of things, so it might not be as exciting as, you know, every set that has come out over the course of this cast or as the course of all of us playing this game. Uh, it might not be as exciting, but as players, we can sit here and look at a set that's going to be more accessible and, and less uh, of a price barrier because of these expeditions. So... A lot of people are going to moan and groan, but I, I think the, like you said earlier, Corbin, the, the overall acceptance of them and how they actually help people pay for some of these cards is going to become apparent real soon. I actually have the other opinion on that. I love the fact that I know all the cards are going to be worthless. Right, right. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. I can just sit around and brew horrible decks with Bring Delight all day long, and I don't have to worry about trying to figure out how much these cards are going to cost. It's the best spoiler season ever. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's what I was saying. Like, as players, we can be really excited. As financiers, maybe not as excited as we could have been. But, yeah, so 
I'm still really excited for it, and I, I really like uh, some of the cards that I see thus far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, before we go, just one last quick question for you, Corbin. So I know we're all kind of really invested in the financial side of things. What's one one card that you really like so far for that aspect of it? Right. Well, basically the only thing I've been excited about financially is Fathom Feeder because it's the most upside. You know, right. like I said, there's certainly the possibility that – we have a, uh, you know, some, one of the Planeswalkers goes from, you know, 15 to 30 over a weekend at a pro tour or something like that. But the opportunity cost of getting in on that $15 Planeswalker is much higher than the opportunity cost of, you know, trading for a dozen $1 Fathom feeders that you're pre-release. So that's, yep. that's definitely where I'm at. Uh, Absolutely. So far. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, everyone, it's been a really good cast. Again, thank you very much, Corbin. It's, it was awesome having you, dude. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it very much. And uh, a little quick thing. I'm really excited for Thursday and Sunday. Um, <laughs> so for any of you that don't know, Corbin is the fish of our <laughs> our uh, fantasy football league. Seth is in it as well. It's going to be an awesome season. I'm really excited because uh, it's finally here. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've got to the Grand Prix this weekend. I can't even sit on Sunday and watch the first weekend. Oh, of my God. Funny, funny fact. Corbin was actually uh, not around for the first couple <laughs> rounds of the draft, so I'm interested <laughs> yeah. in how he does throughout the season. <laughs> yeah, he we'll ended see. up with a pretty we'll good see. team, honestly. In all in all seriousness, well, I think I would have uh, taken. I think I would have taken. I got Le'Veon Bell in the first round, and I think I would have taken that anyways, even with the suspension. Right. Yeah. And then I think I was actually watching uh, for like the second round. And it auto-drafted for me again, but I was actually watching the screen, and I was okay with it, and I was just trying to do some research. So I feel <laughs> comfortable with my team. I'm in two leagues this year, which is new for me, so we'll see. Yeah, it, awesome. I'm so glad um, you wanted in on the league. It's going to be really fun. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we get to do this every year because uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Certainly watch out for Sundays on social media. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in. We will see you next week. Have a good one. This is the crew signing out and Corbin.